It's the Beer Vada Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. Go Beavers! And with me is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible and The Beer Bible Volume 2. <laughs> Episode 2? Mark 2? Uh, uh, yeah, second edition, yeah. Volume 2. Te- New Testament? Uh, volume 2 kind of works. There is new, new, quite a bit of new material in there. So. Yeah. I've actually been reading it. I know you're not going to believe me, but I have. What have you been reading? Well, because we did the, um, uh, the Whitbeer episode, uh-huh. so I... I cracked it open to read about the Whitbeer. That was one of the things that got contracted in the second edition. But you only, you don't have the second edition, do you? I do. I have the first and the second. I'm talking uh-huh. about the second. I've already read the first cover to cover. The, the it, Whitbeer has its whole chapter. Yeah, it's in, pretty small in the second edition. Yeah, it got it got demoted. Which tells you that you really got to go out and get both editions. Don't That's just right. don't just go for the second because the first one has a lot of good information. It's just the second had different information, so you had to. Judge that, but really, if you really want the complete picture, you need both the Old and the New Testament. Apropos of our last podcast or the podcast that we did on Whitbeer, it has it is a declining style, and so I just I relegated it to one of the many Belgian styles covered under the Belgian ale chapter. So, no. I uh, because I'm a pro was able to procure the uh, the beer in question for today's podcast, which I'm excited both to talk about, but especially to drink. Yes. <laughs> we're not going to wait too long. Because uh, <laughs> uh, we're both excited to drink this one. Uh, uh, which can be uh, tricky to find, but I am that good. Yeah, uh, it can. It, it. Is, it is tricky to find. And I'm really happy because not only did I find it, but it's it's spanking fresh. It was bottled six days ago. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, it, it was in a cool cooler, so it was, co- it was cold. And I ran into our good friend Tobias Hahn. From Rosenstadt. Who we interviewed uh, in a recent episode, but I, because you just saw him there, I haven't looked that up. But it's, I'm going to say episode 159. Yeah, uh, I literally just bumped into him. This is at John's Market, if, if anyone cares, uh, on the west side, uh, sorry, on the east side in, on Powell Boulevard. Uh, so good for John's Market for having fresh Pliny the Elder. There was oh, f- you just mentioned it. We have we've been we've been teasing it this whole time. Well, it is in the podcast title, so I don't think I've revealed too much. Uh, you're right. We are talking about Pliny the Elder, so I won't be um, coy about it anymore. That's right. Uh, it can be hard to find, um, but not for me. No, you're you're our bloodhound. God bless you. <laughs> so I was really excited <laughs> that I was able to, to find it, but also I was really excited to uh, to bump into Tobias, uh, frantically stocking all the beer that he having a hard time keeping on shelves. They those guys are going crazy, which is fantastic. That is good. It's it's a good lager season. We're we're into the we're into the summer. Yeah, uh, you want to sit down and have yourself a nice Hellas, maybe yeah. a Pilsner. And I would say they both created and catching. Maybe maybe, maybe a Pabst Blue Ribbon or a Modelo. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You can you know you you can start with the Rosenstadt, and then when you're ready to sort of graduate up, you get your, pap, your Pabst Double Blue Ribbon. <laughs> Sorry, Tobias. I can see you wincing even as uh, he says. By the that. way, if you think about like we've got some eclectic. Uh, so our our Pilsner, our craft Pilsner champion was the uh, CZAF, the the Wayfinder Czech Pils. Right, um, which also had an interesting, you know, because you could go two different, very distinct ways to pick your champion, and we would pick the PBR over the Modelo, which we talked about in last podcast. Meant that we had to go sort of one of two ways, both both good beers in their own right, but quite different. Um, uh, we did the um, uh, Volatile Substance was our IPA pick, right? The Von Ebert beer, and our Mexican lager was not Modelo, but uh, Corona Familia. There you go. So that's the lineup, I think. Do have we tasted any others? Maybe, but that's the lineup, yeah. folks. That's the those are the those are the crowns. Those are your winners. Yeah, the winners of of the Beer Vana podcast challenges. So uh, keep that in mind. Yeah, but and oh, go ahead. R- write us if you have if you want us to try something for the next time, which probably won't be immediately. But uh, <laughs> if you want us to, livers recover. You know, get into I don't know, Schwartz beers or something we'll yeah. uh we'll we'll have a we'll have a lineup we'll by the way it. as a coda to last time because we did this big 18 beer taste off uh you guys were pros 
And I, I don't know if we mentioned this on air during it, so I'm going to just mention it now. And after the first round of nine beers, we split them up into two rounds of nine beers. Uh, all your glasses were barely <laughs> budged. And I had I had consumed almost all the beer in all of my glasses, and I was half drunk. And I realized, oh, man, I am an amateur here. Like, what am I doing? But I learned my lesson, and in the second round, I was much better. I sort of had figured out how to get the taste that I needed from a very small amount of beer. Right. Yeah, so I'm you, proud of myself. That's right. You leave it in your mouth instead of just chugging it down. Yeah, I paid close attention to Alan and how he really kind of sloshed it all around his mouth and and took a big breath and all that kind of stuff. So right. Yeah. All right. Uh, but today we're on to uh, a kind of exciting topic because this is one of these I don't know foundational beers as I think you're going to argue. So nearly a quarter century ago, veteran brewer Vinny Chalurzo. Is that good? I believe that's correct. Okay. Yes, I, I asked him recently to pronounce his name, and 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 he it's a cha, not a sa. But he said, but 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 if you say Salurzo, he's fond of that too. All right, but I'm going to call him Chalurzo. Uh, he brewed a one-off double IPA at Russian River Brewing for a local festival. It would become a regular, bearing the somewhat obscure name of a Roman Roman naturalist. Yeah, he's not Greek. He's Roman. Oh, I looked okay. that up. All right, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you, you caught me there. Pliny the Elder. Pliny pretty soon became a cult phenomenon and ultimately the brewery's calling card. But what makes it special and what makes it a classic is how Vinny anticipated the future of hoppy American ales and brewed the first truly modern IPA those years ago. We'll discuss that history soon, but first... In today's news reading, we're going to do something a little different. First one item, and then a brief discussion about its implications. I hope I... You're, yeah, I hope you're with me on this plan. Okay. <laughs> I am now, because right. already, we've already launched our <laughs> boat, man. We're rolling. <laughs> we've crossed the Rubicon. <laughs> uh, writing on Twitter, Dave Infante broke down some important... Oh, sorry, broke some important news on June 9th. He discovered that Sapporo-owned Anchor Brewery... Anchor Brewing... Well, uh, not doing well. Would not be brewing our special ale, their annual holiday beer, for the first time since 1976. Moreover, after Infante's digging, Sapporo announced it would be ceasing sales of Anchor to 49 of the 50 states in which it was then sold, effective immediately. You may still find stock of Anchor at your local store, but unless you live in California, it will vanish soon. It was it was really big news uh, for a lot of reasons, um, and people were focusing on one of the two of them. Typically, like there were a lot of people really pissed off about the Christmas sale, and there are other people who were kind of staggered by the fact that a once national company would now be one a one state company. Yeah, and I thought it would be interesting because there's a lot of kind of interesting beery things, and also uh, it's sort of a beeronomics thing. It's sort of a rich topic. You you rarely see something this dramatic happen in the beer industry. So. Um, yeah, I thought we could talk about it if you're cool with that. Yeah, so there's a few things that uh, that I've been thinking about. I didn't know we were going to be talking about this, but I did see this news, and it was quite a shock to me, and quite I was quite saddened by it. But there's a few things about Anchor that struck me as kind of hallmarks of really early craft beer. Um, it was one of the very first. In fact, I think it's the very first craft beer I ever had. Um, uh, it could have been a full-sale amber, but one of the two but the thing was those early beers got around when there was very little craft beer around it sort of you started seeing it pop up in in, in other states right yeah absolutely and I, what makes me think of uh, an, uh anchor what what resembles anchor to me in that sense is um rogue brewing in oregon and um rogue is not the easiest thing to find in oregon uh but a lot easier in other states it really sort of became this sort of national brand and they've they've been able to keep that up i don't know how that how that's going but well i think that's one of the interesting things i wanted to talk about is yeah. when you're distributing in many states uh the the profit the per barrel profit really drops down yeah. because it's much harder to compete in other states you have to you have to compete on price and the expense of shipping it you know out of state is 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 a lot higher than it would be if you were selling it locally yeah for sure so for the uh, for the for the brewery that is selling most of its beer at home already as 
anchor was, uh, the idea of, of shipping around to 49 states that you're not selling a lot of it doesn't make a lot of sense if you think that you're not going to turn that around, right? That's yeah. the big thing. It's great if you already have those distribution networks in place. They're very hard to build. They're really, really hard to build. You have yeah. to go into each. It's not just state by state. It's region by region. Most states distributor have, by distributor. <laughs> that's right. Most most states have multiple regions, and you have to go in and negotiate it and put it together in this patchwork fashion. So if you've done that nationwide, that's really hard work. So to pull out is kind of a big deal. It really suggests to me that this is a brewery that does not think that there's a national market. And so from my side, I thought this is kind of a big watershed moment. I think we've seen a lot of uh, examples of of craft beer not being a national product. Uh, A lot of breweries that that are pulling off national distribution, but this was kind of a a shocker to me. It was yeah. really, really surprising. And the other thing that struck me was that their main product was steam beer, which was really cool because it was this sort of uniquely San Franciscan thing, or at least they they played it up as a uniquely San Francisco thing. You can, it is. You no, can, we we did a podcast on on steam, and yeah, it's they're correct. Yeah, uh, and um, so they became known, and I think this is true of a lot of these early breweries. They became known for a beer, um, and rode that to some some quite considerable success for a while but uh depending on you you can also say the same thing is true for um sierra nevada pale but unlike sierra nevada pale which it still has a flavor profile that's uh remarkably modern it hasn't it's not too far away from what people tend to be looking for these days it's got hops in it for example (laughs) steam beer really really is quite uh, quite far afield uh, yeah. from sort of where modern craft beer palettes are. It tastes like the 1980s. It, it tastes like the, ni- the 1980s <laughs> or even 1970s. Right. Uh, and Anchor has been in sort of a bit of an anachronistic brewery, and I think that they've kind of um, uh, pretty deliberately tried. Well, I don't know. I, I, I shouldn't describe any intent, but to me, they seem someone that hasn't been too worried about trying to keep up with trends and brew the newest, latest uh, IPA or, um, you know, smoothie sour or something like that. And, and you know, that, I suppose, is admirable, but I think it also meant that um, their market share just kept, they, 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 they occupied their own little corner, but that corner shrunk to right. something almost non-existent. And I think that that really relates the, the the two stories actually coalesce uh, in a way that may not be obvious if you don't follow beer too closely. Um, the the Christmas beer was of course outside of California a really big deal. Yeah. And and if you're a distributor in, I don't know, Austin, Texas or Topeka, Kansas, uh, probably you're not selling a ton of Liberty and Steam beer throughout the year. Right. But when that when that Christmas ale comes in, people are going to make a special trip because they've been drinking it since 1976. It's, you know, it has all those things that seasonals have that, that other things don't have. Uh, so it's actually one of the reasons, it's one of the benefits to carrying the beer. It's one of the, kuda, you know, the, like the little, right. the little thank yous that a company can send out to, yeah. sur- to satisfy all its, all its wholesalers and retailers across the country. So pulling that at the same time that they're pulling uh, national distribution kind of go hand in hand. It was, I think, it was probably the thing that made it valuable for people to stock the beer. Right. Uh, Ten months out of the year, because two months they had Christmas ale. Right. Right. It's like that uh, Goose Island. The uh, what do they call it? Bourbon country? No. Bourbon County. Bourbon County. Yeah. Yeah. That was a little 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 reward for their for their uh, retailers. That's right. And distributors. But I still think they should be. Selling that to Californians. That's a big ask. Yeah. It's a really important American beer and and pulling it off is dumb and And as you say, we did a, we did a podcast about Anchor Steam not too long ago and we were able, of course, to get Anchor Steam and, and do the podcast and taste it. But uh Well, no. good thing we did that. It's a good thing we did in time. <laughs> yeah. And I as I think at the time, I think on that podcast I I lamented the fact that I thought that Anchor really kind of lost uh, an opportunity to sort of be the San Francisco beer, to to really trade on its its sort of unique, uh, it's no longer unique. There are a bunch of breweries in San Francisco now, but for a while it was pretty unique, and it had a great old brewery, and it and I think it really lost lost a, an opportunity to um, to market itself and to become a more full range brewery. And so I felt sad about that, and I feel sad about this. I felt sad about it too, and and at the time uh, that they did the the big rebrand, 
you made the comment that they should have branded as the San Francisco Brewery, and I think you're dead right. And I think this, you know, who knows what would have happened if they'd done that. It, it may not have changed anything, but it, it certainly was probably have, too late at that point. But may, may have been too late yeah. at that point, but it couldn't have hurt. And I think that rebrand clearly did not work. So no. anyway. Well, uh, that's too bad. I hope that they don't uh, go away. Their brewery is amazing. Um, I've never been there, but I've only I've seen the pictures, and I know from you that wow, it's amazing. Wow, you've never been there. That's amazing. I don't know. Huh. It is. It is amazing. But see, that's one of those things. Like, they could have made themselves a, a, a big tourist stop. Well, it, it is a pretty big tourist stop. You can do tours, and they're amazing tours. So yeah. next time you're in California. So hopefully they can retrench. They can sort of localize and become a major player in the San Francisco and Bay Area and even California beer scene. Totally. All right, well, let's turn to the main topic, which gives me an excuse to open. Yeah, let's get right to the it. bottle of Pliny the Elder. So, why don't you introduce while I open? All right, so we're going to talk about Pliny the Elder, um, which I think probably most of the people who listen to this podcast are going to be familiar with. Uh, pretty famous beer from Russian River in California. And uh, I think, you know, when you talk about the most important IPAs made in America, uh, the list is you know gonna gonna include Pliny the Elder for sure. Uh, it may start and stop with Pliny the Elder, um, but I think one of the things that is important I, that I would argue is that uh, Vinny got to what would be the modern American palate. Uh, okay, we have. Let's not open the door. <laughs> so we have we have people trying to sell us something at my door, but. Um, we're podcasting, so we're not going to answer the door. Uh, I think Vinny got to where the rest of the country would catch up uh, something like 15 years later. He got there around the turn of the century and found a modern flavor. Maybe not the final flavor, but he discovered how to make American IPAs the way other people would begin to make them. Yeah. And so it's really worth visiting what he did. Uh, and... Uh, We'll talk about that. But first, let's shall we taste this beer? Let's taste the beer. Let's right. not waste any more time. Excellent. I'm I'm it's been a really long time since I've had this beer. I realize now. Uh, and I also realize that my memory is different. It's a very bright and light colored beer. Oh, absolutely. It no. it is pretty golden though. Yes. Um it's not uh, it's not like Pilsner Pale. Uh, so we'll talk about we're going to talk about all of this stuff. But yes, that's what it looks like. The aromatics as you open the as you open oh, the bottle. Yeah, I didn't even have to get it close to my nose. As soon as I opened the bottle, I started pouring. Yeah, and this is, as I mentioned, a super fresh batch, which is fantastic. It's I'm really excited. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. we're getting. Um, yeah, it's just um, it's just saturated on the nose with. Oh. <laughs> that air is great. Yeah, that, I was just trying to just I'm trying to think of what all the different uh, uh, flavors I was smelling. There's definitely some pine, but also some sort of citrusy smells as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, I always joke it that it's piney the elder because uh, yeah. pine has always been such a big part of the flavor profile yeah. uh, and aroma, and and still is. Um, we'll talk about the the hops that give rise to that, but part of it. Uh, Having that flavor and aroma profile is that it is a twenty odd year old beer. Twenty, we're gonna, we're going to talk about that. No it one, is amazing, I have to say, just tasting this beer that it's twenty whatever years old. Yeah, what, and what it, did you say? Twenty five. Well, so that we're going to talk about that. Oh, okay. uh, the the origin date, uh, even according to Russian River, is within two, it's it's either nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, or two thousand and one. Okay. And uh, Russian River doesn't seem to have good. Uh, you find different numbers on their own website. So there you go. <laughs> Somewhere around it is the, beer after all. That's I'm glad right. that's appropriate. Exactly. Who cares? Yeah. Let's not get too uh, focused yeah. on that. And they've yep. never really. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. They, I haven't. I don't remember ever seeing the the 10th anniversary of Pliny and the 15th and the 20th. So they yeah. don't. They're not too fussy about all. So that. it's it's just this super saturated aroma super saturated flavor it's it's pretty high alcohol but you don't taste the alcohol I'm very sensitive so i always appreciate that mm -hmm. it's a beer that could be very dangerous if you're not careful because it's quite quaffable but it's it's bitter but it's very flavorful it is and and uh, so they they also make a beer called blind pig yeah which is a reference to Vinny's first brewery, which we're going to talk about in a minute too. Uh, and it's their regular IPA. And that, that one is quite bitter. 
Uh, but mm. because this one is a little bit stronger and it's got more alcohol and it's got uh, just more going on, I feel like it's it's not quite as bitter. It probably has more. Balances out those BUs. That's right. It probably has more BUs, but it, it just feels a little bit more in balance. Yeah. Um, but it's just a, a titan of flavor and aroma. So um, let's talk about how Vinny figured this out early on. Yeah. And we'll start with his story. So I'm going to play a clip. Uh, we had Vinny on uh, the fireside chat that Ben Edmonds and I do for our, uh, our, our uh, for the blog. Uh, and listeners will have possibly heard the pod extra uh, that I posted of that conversation, which included uh, Vinny, Noah Bissell from Bissell Brothers Brewing in Portland, oh, Maine. Nice. And uh, Mitch Steele from New Realm, formerly of Stone, uh, and, and Vinny. And Vinny um, described his early background and his first brewing uh, job uh, and how he got to Russian River. So this is just about two minutes, so just a little bit so you can hear Vinny talk. So we'll come back after this clip. Sounds good. My background of brewing actually starts in Southern California in a town called Temecula, which is about an hour north from San Diego. And uh, I, I started home brewing um, before that, though, in 1989 in San Diego. But from the beginning, I was always brewing what we now we would call a West Coast IPA. Um, I can still remember going to the homebrew shop out in El Cajon in 1989 and buying a bag of hops that said CFJ90 that we now know became Centennial. There was another experimental hop, CFJ4, never knew what happened to it. Um, so I, I eventually opened Blind Pig Brewery in, in Southern California. And because we were so close to San Diego, and at the time there was only three breweries in San Diego, there was Carl Strauss, um, Callahan's, uh, and then the original Pizza Port in Solana Beach, our uh, Blank Pig was always considered a, a San Diego brewery, even though we were the next county up, and uh, and that's where I first made a you know like a ninety BU measured IPA over the top, huge bitterness, low crystal malt, um, at six and a half percent or whatever it was, and then I made a double IPA as our inaugural beer. Um, some of those beers helped um, kind of form some of the early double IPAs that. Greg and Steve made at Stone, which was really cool. And in fact, the first first commercial beer to ever be poured at Stone Brewery was actually a Blind Pig IPA because we were at the inaugural party at the Mattaway property, and uh, that was a, that was a fun party. So, but after a few years of making those beers in Temecula, uh, I sold my part in Blind Pig, and by that point, Natalie and I were married, and we moved to Northern California, got connected with Corbell, and helped start Russian River Brewery. So yeah, so Vinny started this brew pub called Blind Pig. Trivia quiz, Patrick. Do you know what a blind pig is? Uh, it's a pig that cannot see, Jeff. <laughs> uh, it is a it is a reference to something. Do you know what the reference is? Uh, no, but I'm guessing it's some kind of beer reference, maybe a little keg or something. It is a reference to speakeasies, and it's actually like a pre prohibition speakeasy is like a place where you could go to get unlicensed liquor ah a blind pig and it's probably blind to the government. i was gonna say because the liquors could be the wrong type of alcohol and you go blind by drinking it well there's that as well <laughs> <laughs> it works on so many levels uh okay yeah. um no i did not know that so he he named his his first brewery blind pig and then people who have been to restaurant over another beer know that his regular ipa is also called blind pig which is an echo of that brewery for but, the record, a pig that cannot see is also a blind pig. That is, so. that is correct. Thank you. So you, you get partial credit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, he got up to Russian River, and it was it was interesting. It was uh, It's in Santa Rosa, uh, which is north of San Francisco, pretty close to uh, where they brew the steam beer, but uh, up in the, the beautiful country up there. And Fun fact, I've been there. Have you been to Santa Rosa? Have you been to Russian I, River? I so I went to Russian River, but I was with a bunch of soccer kitties. Oh, that's right. You did have you did have this, didn't you? Uh, yes, uh, uh, but I only had a moment to sort of check that box, dash in, and. But you did, yeah, as I recall, because I re- I think you texted me from there. Yeah. So it was originally owned by by Corbell, the wine company, and uh, he was just hired as the brewer, right? But then he and his wife Natalie later bro- uh, bought out the company. Um, and he mentioned there very briefly that when he was at, uh, Blind Pig, the fir- the very first beer he made was this 
uh, IPA called Inaugural Ale. Mm-hmm. And it really situates us in the, the kind of terra firma of IPAs in the, the 1980s and 1990s. Yeah, yeah. Most people were really casting back to English IPAs and yes. they, the romance of the ships going around the horn. And so they were they were making British beers. They were making these beers that had pretty big malt body. Yep. A lot of hops, but not really, you know, bitterness. They were they were really focused on like because the, the 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 somewhat apocryphal story was that <laughs> you know you had to have all this alcohol and, and and hopping so that the beer would survive the the trip all the way to India. Right. Uh, so they were making these kinds of beers, and and I remember um, in the 1990s there were a lot of echoes of these, and 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 you know they were. They were talking about, you know, sometimes they would get wood character in them uh, because they would have been shipped in casks. So very different beers from the IPAs that we know today. And that's what Vinny was first brewing, coming out of being a home brewer when he, had, when he opened up his first brewery. Right. By the time he gets to uh, Russian River and has this uh, uh, opportunity to brew what turns out to be Pliny, uh, it was a local pub who was going to have a double IPA fest and they wanted Vinny to <laughs> brew a double IPA. Oh, really? Yeah. So they, they brewed this and I think even for that fest, uh, and if it wasn't for the fest, it was shortly after when they decided to continue to brew the beer. They looked around old old sources to try to find a cool name for it and they came up with Pliny the Elder. So surely you know why Pliny the Elder? I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm peppering you with, with quizzes here, Professor. I, uh, the only... Uh, spark in my brain is he had something to do with hops, lupulin, or something like that, right? All right, he was a naturalist. What, what might he have had to do with hops? Uh, he discovered hops. <laughs> he wrote about them. He wrote about hops. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he documented hops. He wrote about a lot of stuff, and uh, I, he may actually have named them. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he may have given them the Latin name. So I don't know. Anyway, it was a reference to uh, the famous natural naturalist Pliny. And his name, I guess, is actually pronounced Pliny, but that sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, we don't care. And I suspect that if it had been brewed on the East Coast, uh, they would have probably stuck with Pliny. But there's something about the West Coast where you draw everything out, so Pliny seems much more. Yeah, and as you mentioned, it goes well with Pliny and Piney. Piney and Pliny. Yeah. Um, the so the amazing thing to me about this beer is that. From the start, w- whether it was 1990, 2000, or 2001, Vinny was so far ahead of the, the curve. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was just going to kind of trot through some of the stuff he did. So one thing he did was he used hop extract. Uh, so um, uh, a distillate kind of process right. that you don't have that that uh, is a liquid, and you don't get the the hop matter in the beer right so uh that has a lot of benefits right it 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 means you don't lose beer really important right it means you don't pull any vegetal quality out of the beer yeah um so and you you can you know it's not an agricultural product it's stable and so the flavor profile is always going to be the same um so this is something i I, (laughs) this was really at the time kind of controversial he was always really calm he, you know, he totally mentioned that he did it. He never tried to conceal it. Right. But it was at the time, coming out of the nineties, when people were still debating whether you should be using pellet hops, like whole hops, was considered right. this kind of really, you know, like if you're going to make craft beer, you got to have whole hops. You got a whole yep. hops. Yep. Uh, I remember that well. Yeah. But uh, that uh, it strikes me because that was the first thing that I noticed when I poured this. I just didn't remember it being so bright. And if you, for example, uh, uh, got another sort of buzz beer, the Heady Topper. You poured that thing out, and it was like kind of what you would find out if your garbage disposal went to work, drained <laughs> <laughs> out. I mean, it's a great beer, but it's it's, it's not the be- it's not the most beautiful thing. That's right. Um, so that explains that. That's yeah. That that definitely uh, explains that. He he, you know, he he didn't use a lot of caramel malt. He used a little bit of caramel malt, mm-hmm. uh, but. To balance out that caramel malt, he used sugar. Yeah. And this is another thing that was considered incredibly scandalous. I know, which is crazy because <laughs> it has so many benefits. Yeah. It, it uh, reduces the... So what Vinny is thinking, he's thinking like a brewer, right? Mm-hmm. It's really important as uh, we tell any story about the evolution of beer to think like a brewer because 
it helps unravel a lot of stuff. Like, why would you do this? Well, why would you use sugar? One reason is because uh, it allows you to use, you get a ferment, a fermentable that leaves no sugar behind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you use sugar, but it all gets fermented out. Right. So you have a thinner body. Right. That means you don't have malt character, which means that the hops pop more. Right. Right. So that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to boost alcohol without yep. boosting body and, and density. Yep. And one time when I talked to him, he even compared it to a barley wine. He's like, uh, if you compare strong beers and you want to see what malt does, get a barley wine. Right. And you can you can kind of see how that malt builds up and builds up and becomes a really big part of the character. Super heavy, have, thick. Yeah, right. Right. You you may have a lot of hop character, but you're going to have a lot of this competing yep. malt character. Yeah. And he didn't want any of that. So he put sugar in it. And then, and I think this is kind of the most absolutely uh, amazing. Oh, yeah, I even have a quote here. Let me, let me, let me put the quote. Uh, Vinny told me I've, I've interviewed him a couple of times on uh, the subject of Pliny the Elder, and this was the first time <laughs> I interviewed him maybe ten years ago. He said, "Also, uh, we're using a lot of sugars in fermentation, dextrose sugar, so it's drying the beer out and giving the beer a nice, uh, light, dry body, yep. super crisp." But really dry yet really bitter. So mm-hmm. that's what he was shooting for at the time, and and uh, you know that that helped him get there, right? He's using the tools he 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 has. Um. So then the uh, uh, the other thing is he is using whirlpool hops. So this is another technique that you can use to increase the flavor and aroma of hops. Yeah. After the beer uh, is boiled, you put hops in the kettle uh, and they they uh they steep like tea mm-hmm. and you get flavor that way that was f- relatively common uh pretty pretty common technique uh in around 2000 when bridgeport was making their ipa they used a ton of it they had a massive charge that way that's how they got all their their juiciness yeah uh but then he did something that i think was so far ahead of everybody that uh it just blows my mind and <laughs> this this was when i interviewed him uh, for the piece I, I did on the blog on making it a, a classic, he said, we did two two dry hops, one at the end of fermentation and one in the middle of the 12 to 14 day period. Yeah. So this may sound very normal to you because... <laughs> that's what everyone does. That's right. Beginning about five years ago, you started seeing this word, or uh, I guess it's a little longer than that. Yeah, now. I was going to say 10 years ago. Yeah, maybe not quite 10. Somewhere between five and 10 years ago, you started <laughs> seeing this, this, these, these three letters, DDH, everywhere. And, and you started hearing about biotransformation. And it was all the hip kids on the East Coast who were promoting this new radical technique of, of using two dry hop additions mm-hmm. and using one near fermentation uh, because it turns out uh, that when you get yeast involved uh, with, with hops, it will biotransform the, the terpenes. So mm-hmm. it'll change the flavors of the ester profile and give right. you more fruitiness. Um, and I think everybody, there's this, there's this narrative in American history which goes something like this. Originally, there were West Coast IPA brewers, and they made extremely bitter beers. And uh, they were very clear and very dry. And then, 20 years later, East Coast breweries started making what became hazies, and they were very sweet and saturated with flavor and aroma. And the two didn't communicate to each other, and they didn't know <laughs> they didn't know what each other were doing. And one came after the other, uh, and that they were really different. And in fact, if ever you hear a story like that, it's almost never the case. Brewers always talk to each other; they always drink each other's beer. Yeah, they're always thinking about how to get to a flavor profile. And so, it's not surprising to me to learn that um, somebody like Vinny had done exactly what the East Coast brewers had done, which is how do I get more flavor and aroma into this beer? Mm-hmm. And, and so I'll, what I'll do is I'll just add all the hops every chance I get throughout the brewing process and I'll find out what works. And when I get the beer I want, that's, that's what I'll go with. So, you know, DDH double dry hopping did not start with hazies. It's, it started about 15 years before hazies came along. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, Vinny was, was way, way early there. So yeah, you jump in there. I, that was a big rant for me. <laughs> no, uh, I don't even remember what I was going to say along the way. Um, uh, but what I what I um, uh, wanted to comment when we were talking about the sugar edition is that uh, in t- 
until Pliny came along, you were getting these bigger and bigger IPAs that were just super dank. Um, and, and we talked about the hops and how the hop fish to fish to uh, vegetal. Vegetal? Well, vegetal, thank you. Applying this in your head. <laughs> I know, straight to my head. Uh, that quality was coming through, and yeah, there was a lot of malt being used to balance out all the hops, and there were big IU bombs. Um, and what really struck me with Pliny the Elder was, uh, and I think a lot of it had to do with um, one, I'm learning now about the, about the, uh, uh, the hop, what do you call it? Concentrate? Distillate? No. Uh, Pliny's got it in my head too. Uh, extract. The hop ec- extract, but also because <laughs> because of the sugar. And and as a home brewer, I I realized the the benefit of sugar um, when trying to make uh, uh, English beers. But um, uh, sugar is kind of an amazing green, and it's amazing how it had such a bad rep for such a long time in, in craft beer because it does so many things, especially for bigger beers. It really thins out the body. It gives you this crisp, dry finish, and then it gives you this platform where all those flavors can really pop. They're, right. not, they're not muddled by the, by the malt. And I think that that's what really struck me the first time I had Planet of the Elder is just how, how much just bright flavor there was. Totally. Um, and for such a big beer. Because I was used to these big, dank, murky, you know, heavy <laughs> beers, which I loved at the time. Uh, but this kind of broke that mold. Yeah. And yeah. it is the modern IPA uh, profile now. It's so modern. I mean, so admittedly, uh, this beer has, has evolved a little bit. Yeah. Uh, when I talked to Vinny um, in, I think it was probably about 2021, to talk about this beer, they, they actually don't d- double dry hop it anymore. Mm. Uh, they're, they're to a single dry hop. And the reason he did that uh, was because they wanted to, or I'll have the quote here. Um, we were not seeing a difference in aroma. And so we simplified the process and went to one dry hop and also uh, lowered the risk of oxidation. Mm. So not in, not, not adding, uh, you know, hops that, that have more surface area with oxidative compounds. Right. Um, and he said that, you know, they, 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 they tried it with batches, did side by sides, had customers taste it and nobody could really tell the difference. So if you can get the same, this is the other, if you want to look into a brewer's mind, they will always do the most pragmatic thing. They will, they they will uh, save time and money wherever they can. Uh, and especially if there's no cost and lower risk. Yeah. Yeah. Especially all those things. If you can get all that for, for, uh, no change in the flavor profile, you're definitely going to go for it. Why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, you I, you mentioned here I can already see but I'm curious like what was the original hopping schedule like what were the hops that were in it then and what are the hops that are in it now Yeah I I so the hops that are in it now are uh, Amarillo Centennial CTZ and Simcoe mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure that. So that's a little old school still. It's 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 still very old school. The only, the <laughs> only no mosaic and no citra. I mean, that's right. I mean, so this, <laughs> can you make an IPA without? <laughs> Turns out you can. Yeah, the reason it's so piney is because it was made with the old the old school hops. These are all, yeah. and in fact, Amarillo wasn't released until uh, 2003. So I know it was not in the original one. It must have been Cascade in the original. It, Cascade may well have been in the original. I'm yeah. I'm guessing that Centennial was there. Simcoe yeah. came out in 2000. Yeah. Uh, it's it's it wouldn't actually shock me, especially if the beer was was from two thousand one or 2000, 2000 or two thousand one, that Vinny might have gotten a hold of Simcoe a little bit earlier. Uh, just because a lot of brewers sometimes will get experimental hops before yeah. they're released commercially. So yeah. Simcoe, which is a very piney, very old school yes. kind of classic hop, as is Centennial. Those those two are pretty pretty classic flavor profile. Um, they they would have you know. Uh, I, I think those are whether Simcoe was in the original grist or the original hop uh, load or not. Uh, it's very much of a kind of those earlier versions. Um, and the thing that I'm really glad you were able to find this because me too. <laughs> you know, it's possible. So it's you don't get the same kind of juiciness out of old hops that you get out of new ones. You don't get that tropicality. No, that's you true. get you get very much a, a, a citrus piney. Mm-hmm. Juiciness, but yep. it is still juicy. You still get that quality of yes, of saturated, like just 
lovely, lovely fruity flavors, just dense, dense fruity flavors. Yeah. Um, and the just tremendous aroma here too, which I think that's the thing that when you, if you, if we could teleport back in time, if we could try and travel back to 2000 and taste the beers that were being made, people had not figured out the aroma, the aroma yet. Yeah. Uh, they were, they were, they'd figured out the bitterness. Uh, you just put a bunch of hops in the kettle and you're going to get a tremendous amount of bitterness. But this kind of fragrance that, that, that wafts out of the glass. I remember the first time I had Pliny, which was not around 2000. It would have been maybe five years after it was released. It yeah. was, it was, I didn't, I didn't have it immediately, but it was still revelatory to me. It was still shocking. I couldn't, I had, I remember the pint distinctly. I had a pint of it at uh, the horse press here in Portland, uh-huh. which is easily the most reliable place to get it. They often have plenty on tap. Yeah. Um, and it's just so, it was just so incredibly aromatic, which was light years ahead of its time. And while you can get better aroma out of modern hops, it's really a technique. The way that you get the aroma is, is not principally ingredient based it's, it's process based right, right and right. so it took a clever brewer to figure that out early yeah. and he did yeah. and and just to kind of emphasize the point um the even bigger cult beer is is the little brother of plenty of the elder plenty of the younger which is mm-hmm. a triple ipa <laughs> and that that thing has apparently four hop uh, dry hop editions wow. so yeah he, and that was released in 2005 so again very early and plenty i don't know if it immediately but it certainly became a sensation fairly quickly and it was one of the first real it beers where people were lining up, where people were trying to find it, where it was popping up on the resale market for ridiculous amounts of money. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think early, I think one of the very early podcasts, we mentioned this because I mentioned talking about like, as a business person, what do you do? Do you make a ton of it and sell? Or is it good to be scarce and to create this buzz? and? And then there was all this ethics of the resale market and stuff like that. I don't want to get into that now. But the point was, it was like uh, it happened again with a few other beers. Hetty Topper, we mentioned, was another one. I think like Treehouse also was. The, so it happened again and again. But it, it was this was the first one that I know of that mm-hmm. I remember. Yeah. 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 I, I think I think it was probably the first one I was aware of, too. Yeah. And, and of course, Pliny the Younger was even rarer and harder to get. Um, but for my money, having had uh, Pliny the Younger and Blind Pig, so if you look at these as a spectrum, you got Blind Pig, regular IPA, yeah. Pliny the Elder, double IPA, Pliny the yeah. Younger, triple IPA. The one that really brings it home to me, just like is perfect, is the perfect beer, is, is Pliny the Younger. I, 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 I'm prepared to go on record as saying that I think Pliny the Younger is the best American IPA uh that uh, it's like if I had to give somebody a beer that expressed American IPA ness, I, w- I would give them a Pliny the Younger, a uh, Pliny the Elder. I'm sorry. Okay, uh, yeah, you've been saying younger. I oh, sorry, thought I mean, you meant Elder. I yeah. mean Elder. Okay, but <laughs> it's slightly confusing because Younger is the bigger one, and I, yes. I confuse myself. Yes, yeah, yeah, Pliny yeah. the Elder. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. I want to make sure because uh, yeah. So this, by the way, this uh, Pliny the Elder is um, you say bigger. That's why I was. Looking at you cross-eyed when you said younger, uh, this is already an eight percent right. ABV beer. Yeah, it's 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 a yeah. boomer. Yeah. So what I would like to do, Jeff, and we had talked about this, but we were unprepared, so we might have to take a short break. Is I'd like to compare this beer to an ultra modern modern day IPA. I got one. I know. So why don't we take a quick break and break it out, and then we'll uh, do that. All right. All right. So uh, we're back. I have grabbed. The latest edition of Fort George's three-way IPA, Fort George from Astoria, Oregon, every year puts out the three-way IPA, which is a collaboration with two other breweries. In this case, it's a collaboration with Anchorage Brewing Company, which I assume, I'm just going to guess, it's from Anchorage, Alaska, and Cellarmaker Brewing Company. That, that's Anchorage, Ohio. <laughs> Okay, smartass. Where's where's Cellarmaker from? Bay Area. From Bay Area? Yeah. Okay. But where in the Bay Area? That's a big place. Anyway, here we go. I think uh, think it's San Francisco, but I'm not sure. I'm looking it up right now. The point is, if we're going to call, if you're going to call Pliny the Elder the first modern IPA that set the template or that was a really important milepost, I don't know, mile, uh, 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 way marker. Uh, let's compare Pliny with the most modern IPA we can find, which is this one. 
That's right. And uh, I think uh, it's great. So this is just released or not even released yet? It is just released. Okay. This year, for the second year in a row, uh, they have done two versions of the three-way. They've done a, a West Coast and a Hazy. And so the one that we're trying is the one that I've already tried, which is the West Coast. And, and I, as we conspired, uh, Patrick said we should do apples to apples. That would be West Coast to West Coast. So I think that's, that's appropriate. Uh, All right. Here we go. Uh, three-way has become a bit of a cult favorite because it's a limited release every year. Every year it's a new collaboration. It's a new recipe. We know you can go all the way back to our uh, podcast with Ruben's Brews. They uh, talk about how impressed they were that it was a true collaboration. Right. That there really is collaboration on recipe. There's iterations until they get it right before it's released. So this isn't just a marketing gimmick, but this is a true, true collaboration. So, And if you happen to be in Astoria uh, over the winters before... In, in any winter, if you're like, <laughs> you're at the pub in, in January, one of the cool things is you get to try the beta versions. They'll be like, three-way beta uh, 2.3, and you know you can try them. And, you can uh, see. So yeah. it takes a while to dial in the right the right recipe. Uh, so what strikes me immediately is one, big aroma profile. Two, the aromas are now a little more tropical, a little, there is that, there's kind of a, this is going to sound... Um, like a criticism, but what is that kind of um, almost um, smoky? Oh, like a phenol? Yeah. Huh. Or maybe maybe I'm just imagining. I'm not getting a phenolic, but... Uh... Oh, wow. Mm. Uh, it's sort of... I don't know, tropical slash stone fruit? How would you describe mm -hmm. it? Yeah, very much so. I think there's definitely, and I really like that. I, yeah. uh, there's a... So the peachy plus yeah, yeah. kiwi I, or something. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. So the cool thing, you're going to like this. All right. This is sort of a New Zealand showcase. Okay. That makes sense to me. So it's got... I tasted it. It's got Citra and Simcoe, mm -hmm. but it's also got New Zealand Cascade. So ah. New Zealand grown net cascade, Pikamai Riwaka, and HR Riwaka, which I don't know what HR, but these are all uh, uh, New Zealand hops. Right. So it's uh, New Zealand definitely has its own terroir, and, and I do so, love me the South Pacific. I yeah. know you you love the New Zealands, <laughs> but I gotta say there is this one. It's only on the nose, mm. not in the palate. Mm. There's one little aroma that I can't pin down. It's not smoke was wrong, burnt is wrong, but it's something more like a base note rather than a top note. No, it's kind of a top note, but it's just like this um, a smoky top note. Yeah, okay. So I know <laughs> smoke was really the wrong word. I don't know. I'll, I'll I'll live with this beer for a little bit and then I'll I'll get back to you. But uh, so draw the lines. How do you? Where do you see Pliny in this? I mean, the. I think if, if if somebody just land if a if a, if a Martian landed and, mm -hmm. and and you gave them these two beers, uh, they would say that they're you know they're very they're very different, but they would recognize them as the same category of of thing, right? Like yeah. they would they would they would seem familiar. Yeah, immediately I would say the the malt base, right? The the cream the clean crisp. Uh, uh, base that you have in this beer is really just a platform for the hops to shine. That's right. And I think that's what Pliny really dialed in. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that is that uh, uh, along with allowing the hops to shine by the way you treated them in the brewing process, right? Yeah. <clears throat> but um, but that to me, uh, for me personally, that really distinguishes sort of the old school versus the new school IPAs. Because the old school were malty, caramel malty, sort of a bit heavy, bitter, and not a lot of bright hop notes. And then both the hops changed, but also the platform upon which the hops did their thing changed. So both Pliny and this beer have Simcoe. Okay. Pl Pliny uh, does not have Citra. It probably, if he were to make it today, he would be a new <laughs> Citra, I'm just guessing. Uh, and, and it also uses Cascade. But those three hops, uh, Citra, Cascade, and Simcoe, uh, Citra is really a, a new old school hop. Mm -hmm. It really 
it, it, it sits exactly at the hinge point between the new and the old. So I think, I think one thing that I've noticed in the way that IPAs have evolved is that going back to, we talked about familiarity when we were talking about mass market lagers. When people taste an IPA, they want it to be, there has to be a point of familiarity. And I think that point of familiarity are, are old school American hops. Yeah. So Pliny the Elder is 100% old school American hops. Mm-hmm. It just tastes old school in that way. And this one has the, the the stone fruit, which may partly be coming from the Kolsch yeast, which they use on mm, this one, okay. um, yeah. so, which often will throw off like pear, uh, esters, yeah. um, very, you know, or, or yeah, stone fruit, peach, um, apricot, those kind of esters. Yeah. Uh, but also this really familiar citrus line that runs through the whole thing. And then you have these other kind of more tropical flavors on top of it. But yeah, yeah, it strikes me as as very much a continuum. I mean, I think I think there's a hint of pininess in this too. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think if you if you look at older IPAs that haven't really evolved, uh, it's harder to get from those. So, like if you take Celebration Ale, Sierra Nevada Celebration Ale, which is arguably the first IPA made in America, yeah, um, it really doesn't quite have the same. It, it's harder to place it on the continuum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? It's harder to draw the line back there. But these, I, to me, these these two seem pretty closely related. Yeah. No, I, I'm 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 willing to be persuaded by your argument. Way when, lower bitterness. This one is way way less bitter. Yes. Okay. Then that's and that's the difference of twenty years. Right. Yeah. I mean, Pliny is bitter. Yeah. It is. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's not one of those face smacking. You know. Uh, 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 almost objectionable bitter. It's it's there, but right. it's on it's underneath the flavors, yeah. right? And it's not on top of. Um, and this lacks lacks. It has a nice bitter balance. I don't mean to say that it's sweet and, and gross and cloying, no. and cloying. It's just not. I mean, Pliny is old school in that sense. Like, it really, it, it, yeah, it really. <laughs> that's is. how you know that it's from twenty years ago. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think that's what gives it that quality of a classic. I mean, yeah, classics absolutely. have to be, you know, in order to be a really a, a beer that that earns its stripe as a classic, you have to be relevant to modern palates while still maintaining a sense of timelessness. Yeah. And it's very hard for beers to do that because things change so much. So at a certain point, some beers just end up in this uncanny valley that's like, it's just too weird. It, it, may, be, it may be traditional, it may be classic, but we don't really relate to it anymore. Yeah. But Pliny is not that beer. Pliny still has relevant, re, you know, relevant flavors and, and, and aromas for the modern palate, even while it has uh, this kind of timelessness that you can cast, <laughs> you can easily see that it's a 20-year-old beer. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, cool. That was a fun, that was a fun experiment. So that was a fun experiment. I'm glad we, we, we pulled this out. Pliny's not super widely distributed, but um, it's worth seeking out if you can That's find right. it. That's right. It's in it's in four states outside of California, and they're sort of random. I think uh, Colorado's one, yeah. Oregon's another. And there's somebody on the East Coast gets it too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't like Pennsylvania remember. Pennsylvania or something. It's. Uh, but before I set out today, I did a quick look on there. They have a beer finder tool, so you can kind of uh, see if you can if you can get it near you. That's right. And I mean, it's worth going to the Bay Area for so many reasons. And if you're in the Bay Area, drive yourself up to Santa Rosa because uh, there's some good beer up there. Yeah, Rush River is cool. It's kind of understated, sort of slightly rustic place. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, 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 other breweries up there that are really good, too. So uh, all, all up and down the, the North Coast. I mean, it's funny. We often talk about the West Coast as being... The Pacific Northwest and San Diego. Yeah. But there's this whole Northern California thing that really is halfway in between the two. And it's I think I think Pliny is a perfect example of a halfway in between the two. It's not a San Diego IPA, it's not a it's not a Pacific Northwest IPA. Yeah. It's um so it's a great place to go. You should check it out. Cool. All right. Well, we should move on uh, because we do have yet another uh a relatively full mailbag so thank you yeah thanks guys um we always appreciate hearing from you and we i see the first mailbag item is from a great friend of the pod uh kyle novice who i believe is in the bay area so thanks kyle yeah uh, you can you can now you can weigh in on all this <laughs> so we hear from kyle uh, regularly so thank you very much we appreciate that kyle writes i was reading through the facebook comments on the article by lou bryson on rising costs and craft beer Ben Parsons made the comment that in trying to avoid raising their prices, they have to, among other things, seek out cost efficiencies. Ben Parsons is uh, one of the owners at 
Portland's barrel brew. Right. Can you talk about what some of those efficiencies might be? It seems like every brewery talks only about using the finest ingredients and so on. Is there more subpar ingredient they'll use, they'll start turning to instead? Are we going to see more, uh, in parentheses, cheaper corn making its way into grain bills, more automation, and so on? Uh, And so on was mine. Right. It was implied. (coughs) Yeah. No, I get the point exactly. So what is it that breweries do uh, to become more efficient. Yeah, I, I, a lot of this is process. So uh, a good example, I was recently talking about that whole anchor thing that we mentioned mm-hmm. uh, at, at the top of the pod. Uh, when you when you have to make decisions, so for example, here's, here's a great example of efficiency. Um, you can buy malt in at least three different volume sizes. Mm-hmm. 50 pound sacks, which is the most expensive per pound, really expensive. Right. And then there's these big, and I can't remember they have a name. They're kind of giant sacks. Right, those big square ones. Yeah, yeah. there's the big square sacks. They're probably, I don't know, like 50 times as big as as a as a bag or something. I don't know. They're fair, big. They pretty, take a they take a forklift or some kind of hoisting mechanism. Right. Yeah. yeah they're like a they're like the size of a pallet of beer. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, there's that. And then there's a grain silo. And at every level, it gets cheaper right. per per pound of, of of grain. The problem is, if you're going to invest in a grain silo, it's a big capital cost. So you have to you have to run the numbers. Like how long will I have to own this thing before right. the I can offset? You, you're the economist. You talk about well, it. Well, and, and I was going to say, and you can make uh, 10 fantastic specialty beers with 10 different malts, but that's super expensive. There you go. Or what you can do is you can devise recipes that all use the same base malt, maybe throw in a little specialty malt on top. And if you buy a grain silo, guess what you're going to do? <laughs> exactly. You're going to fill it with that base malt. That Every beer is going to be mostly that base malt. And then you play around around the edges with specialty malts and things like that, which is totally like I'm not. This is totally legitimate. It's fine. the 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 proof of the pudding is the ultimate result, and there's which a, is the the taste of the beer. And you can achieve those flavors using largely the same base malt. And that's one example of an efficiency. That's right. And and uh, same thing with hops. You can buy larger lots of fewer hops instead of buying yeah. a whole bunch of hops on the spot market. And yeah, and hops depending on where they come from, depending on the weather conditions this year or that year. If you're a small craft brewer, you're probably buying on the spot market. You're not engaging in futures contracts and stuff. And so depending on which hops are more expensive or le- less expensive because of weather conditions, because of whatever, you might alter your uh, your hop schedule or your, your hop load. Um, and, you know, you tweak your, your recipes. And by the way, there's a lot of ways to get a very similar favor profile. We often talk about house character uh, when we talk about traditional beers. Like mm-hmm. if you talk about a brewery like... Uh, uh, Saison DuPont or Harvey's in England. Um, you talk about how the beers taste a lot alike. One of the reasons they taste a lot alike is because those breweries use the same malt for every hot, for every beer, yeah. right? Because yeah. that's that's what you do. You yeah. know, you, you, that's your house. That's your house. The same characters. malt, the same yeast. Often. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. clears throat> and so it, it, we we tend to romanticize that, but there's an incredibly pra- pragmatic reason for that. The way that craft brewers make it, where they come up with a different recipe with all kinds of different crazy stuff for every single recipe that is historically pretty un, uncommon and and for a lot of reasons uh if you're if your margins if, if you just don't have crazy margins that you can you can afford to do anything yeah you do have to kind of focus and then and it, that that's what creates house character yeah and here's another efficiency is how long your beer sits in a bright tank right or in the fermenter Yep. So uh, there's different ways to achieve bright beer. You can filter. You can just decide you're not going to have as bright beer. That's totally fine, too. It's just a matter of appearance for the most part. Uh, and Alan Taylor told us something that blew my mind. Yeah, this did blow my mind, too. And you'll have to, you'll have to get the step. I but don't, it's, I'm not going to remember But it. it's something like you don't need to lager. Like a lager doesn't need to take more than 14 days, something like that. Yeah, it was some... It, like typically you'll hear four weeks as at a minimum for yeah. most brewers and Alan had a much lower date than that. Some, yeah, so something along that. So there's a lot of ways in which you can achieve efficiency. So waiting is bad. Waiting is super costly. You got to store your beer in big tanks. That's super costly. And, and that's a really good example. Uh, the yeast thing. So some lager yeasts will uh, kick off a lot of gross stuff 
that takes a lot longer to clean up. So an efficiency would be finding a better logger yeast that didn't kick off a lot of gunk, so right. that you could you could knock them out a lot faster. Yeah. Um, and and uh, you know people who love that yeast would say, what, but we get a better final product. Yeah. And and so when we logger it for four or six weeks, we ended up with a superior product. Yeah. That's all arguable, but it's not efficient. By the way, we've just covered about three weeks of my beeronomics uh, syllabus. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so thanks, Kyle. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if my my class is gonna is gonna go. By the way, oh no, uh, I'm running into all kinds of bureaucratic. But they requested it. Problems, yeah. You say sort of. That's a class. Isn't that a classic university thing? Will you do this thing and then you try to do it? Right, well, it's, yeah. there's all these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Universities don't. are not efficient. Yeah. Speaking of efficiency, maybe I'll just do it as like an open, you know, an open free course that anyone can join, and we'll just have fun talking about bureaucracy. There you go. All right. Uh, why don't you take the next one? All right. This comes. I know from, this guy. This comes from a rare and <laughs> unknown figure out on the East Coast. Somebody named Will Romy. Uh, of course, people who may be stumbling onto this podcast for the first time, Will Romy is our producer. He edits every one of our podcasts. Uh, he used to be here in Portland, but he moved to uh, Western Mass, Northampton Mass. Uh, and I just want to give a shout out because he does it pro bono. He, he does, does it entirely for free for us, uh, which is just amazing. And thank you, Will. I sent I sent him a batch of beer a while back, and I think the only way we're gonna keep him doing great work is I got to keep sending him batches of beer. So maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah. Will is due for another one. Anyway, here's what Will Will says regarding the Belgian episode. I mostly agree with the premise anecdotally. So. Uh, we were talking about why this uh, two episodes back why Belgians have faded. Yeah, um, in so, the U.S. In the U.S. Yep. Uh, he works at Provisions Bottle Shop in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, he says. There, I probably move the least classic Belgian ales, even when cool, sexy, uh, uh, trendy American breweries tackle the styles. Schilling's stunning, pre- stunningly precise triple, Honest Weights double. So these are two breweries I've never heard of. Um, but actually, I've heard of Schilling. People really talk highly about Schilling, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know Schilling. Never, honestly, never heard of Honest Weight. Sorry, Honest Weight. Um, there are definitely some really devoted customers of Belgian ales, too. But I think the spot I work might be uh, I work at might be enough of a destination that I get those outlier customers. Lambics seem like the exception here and have definitely retained some cachet due to the perceived rarity. Maybe extensive lambics sell really well for me at the store, including Tilcan's uh, new ten percent ABB maple syrup lambic. What the what? What, <laughs> what the what? Do they have do they have maple trees in Belgium? I don't know. Maybe they do. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, you know, I still think there's a, there's a, um, especially the old school beer geeks, like Belgians will always have that place. Yeah. And I do, uh, man, you and I, I think settled on the idea that, that we, we had convinced ourselves that it's cyclical and they're coming back. But, um, I don't know. I think maybe Will is saying they're not, but maybe they're. I don't know, Will, you didn't talk about the demographics of these people who are buying them. Maybe they're young. That's a very good point. So that's my ex- expectation, <laughs> is that the people who are buying them look like us. Yeah. <laughs> and you Jeff, mean sexy? And Jeff, we ain't no spring chickens. Uh, <laughs> we're getting on. Yeah, um, we are. So, yeah, I, 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 still, I still worry a bit um, uh, about uh, Belgian beers and Belgian styles. And craft beers that that made their name on Belgian styles, but it's good to hear that they're still selling in um, uh, in certain parts. Yep. Uh, hi, Will. Hey, Will. <laughs> thanks for thanks for checking in. That's right. Thanks but, for cleaning us up. By the way, and you mentioned Bissell Brothers earlier. I'll be in Maine again this summer. I'll be in Portland, Maine for two days while my son is. Get ye the hell to Bissell Brothers. I'm Say gonna, hi to Noah. I'm going to get me to Bissell Brothers, so you should uh, arrange an introduction. I'll do it. I'm also going to get me to, to Maine Beer Company, too. I've got two full days aimlessly because my, my son's going to be engaged in other things to, to wander around Portland. Maybe I'll. And I'll, I might as well just drink a lot of beer. Well, I could send a. Maybe I'll send a, a recorder along with you. Sit down with Dan Cleveland. All right, let's do it. All right. I'm, I'm on. Because right. I, I literally have two full days. Uh, we can talk about this off pod. How about okay. that? <laughs> this is the kind of thing that Will may clean up for us. Yeah. <laughs> Will can, no, maybe Will can join. My point was, maybe Will can join us because he's not too far away. That's right. All right. Uh, last uh, mailbag item comes from Adam Wallace. Adam writes, 
uh, again with Belgian. Belgian styles were, for the most of the 90s and 2000s, held up as the pinnacle of beer by Michael Jackson and others. But that was an era of monoculture in American craft beer. My theory is that the combination of Jackson's passing and innovations like New England IPAs created a shift that didn't just bring in a ton of new craft beer drinkers, it also brought back lapsed craft drinkers who were never that interested in Belgian styles in the first place. Totally plausible. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, no, really interesting point, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, because Belgian styles became kind of de rigueur for a while. Right. And so if you were into craft beer, you needed to be into Belgian styles. That's and right. not everybody was. That's right. Yeah, they were sort of the the like fussy Pinot Noir in the beer in the in the wine world where it was like yeah. the kind of weird style that you maybe didn't get, you didn't understand what the deal was. Like give me a big thick jammy cab. What is this Pinot? Right. But you knew if you were cool, you were supposed to like the Pinot. Right, exactly. <laughs> is that true? Is Michael Jackson like super was that his Oh yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He was the tri- he was the great tribune of Belgian beer. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, uh, Kyle and Will and Adam, for those uh, uh, contributions to our mailbag. I appreciate it. But we need to wrap this thing up, Jeff. I guess so. We do. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. We do. All right. So, <laughs> so a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. Uh, we do love to hear from you. So please send your questions, comments, suggestions, whatever. Just random stuff to jeff at beerfunnelblog.com or on twitter or and or instagram cleverly we have the same handle for both that's at beervanapod nobody snagged that from us amazing yeah amazing yeah and charged us like a hundred bucks for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh jeff you blog the beervana blog if you case you didn't know i do and you also tweet tweet at beervana i do you tweet at beeronomics Although I've been pretty good on the Instagram. And you've been pretty good on the Instagram. I was about about to toot your own horn, but you tooted it instead. The Instagram is a joint effort. So that's your that's a, that's a fun game. Who 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 posted this? Exactly, it is a fun game. It is a fun game. If it's sort of erudite and sort of interesting about beer, that's probably Jeff. If it's stupid and about like sausage, sausage, it's probably about me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we should get going. So uh, we have the latest Fort George three IPA. We didn't talk too much about it. It's fantastic. It I'm really just is. Say good. that. So uh, go find the newest one. Yeah. Good luck finding the newest one. But go go try. Yeah. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. That was really well. Cheers. <laughs>